Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, Australia and I'm co-host of this channel. The city of Chiang Mai in northern Thailand has become the destination for a growing segment of the international tourism market, religious tourism. International tourists visit Buddhist temples, volunteer as English teachers, discuss Buddhism with student monks, and experiment with meditation. While such interactions may appear to be yet another case of the commodification of Buddhism, Brooke Shednick argues that the phenomenon of religious tourism in Buddhist Chiang Mai is another way in which Thai Buddhism is adapting to a more globalised, market-oriented society, and it may even constitute a new opportunity for Buddhist missionary work. Religious Tourism in Northern Thailand Encounters with Buddhist Monks, uh, published by University of Washington Press in 2021, has been shortlisted for the Euro-Seas Humanities Book Prize for 2022. Today I'm talking to the book's author, Brooke Shednick, Brooke is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Brooke, thanks so much for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to talk about your book. You're welcome. And thank you, Patrick, for reading the book and letting me, letting me talk about all of its arguments and ideas here. Can we start off, can I start off by asking you how and why you became interested in Buddhism in Northern Thailand in particular? Yes. So I have a religious studies background from my undergraduate and graduate degrees in the United States. And when I was pursuing dissertation fieldwork, I conducted that throughout Thailand for my first book on international meditation centers. And during that time, I lived in Chiang Mai for the dissertation research. But then after I completed that research, I kept living in, in Chiang Mai and I, I didn't leave for another eight years. And so that a period of time was really significant for my understanding of Thai Buddhism, you know, developing further understanding and also the conceptualization of this project. So during that time, once I graduated with my PhD, I was teaching and working in Chiang Mai, uh, teaching study abroad students at Chiang Mai University. And so out of the experience of living in my, like within the, the research site, uh, came came this book and, you know, because I'm I'm living in contemporary Thailand, that that has always been my interest is in um, is in the, the contemporary period, and so I think that this book is unique because instead of traveling back and forth from my you know university, which you know most you know my university you know uh, eventually became outside of Asia, but you know before moving away from Thailand like I did in 2017, I went because I was living there. 
I, and I didn't have to go back and forth. I was there the whole time. So I was able to really make lots of contacts and kind of figure out the project that I was going to do. So that's when it started. Uh, when After I graduated, I started thinking about this in, in 2013 because I had been researching about meditation centers, but I was thinking about what are the other types of ways for tourists to engage in within Buddhism, because that's what the what I was noticing, what monks were also interested in as well, because I was teaching the undergraduate students from abroad, and I was connecting also with student monks who were pursuing their degrees at the monastic universities. And so that's, that's kind of the, the, the kind of background to the conceptualization of this book. Yes, you have a, a long-standing interest in Buddhism and tourism in Asia, and you've published earlier books which also touch on this theme. What what draws you to this particular theme? Yeah, I'm, it's not because I like tourists, because I I'm much more interested in the in the in the monastic institution and the and the monks and the student monks, and I think you can see that in this book because I have the first four chapters are about. Buddhists and Buddhist monks, and then the just the fifth chapter is about tourists. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not really within uh, tourist studies, and I, I haven't, you know, done a, like training within anthropology of tourism. Although I think that stuff is is really cool. My focus is is on religious studies, but I think because of the my interest in the contemporary period and the fact that I was like kind of working with tourists in a way as I was working with my students they were they weren't you know exactly tourists but they were kind of in the mold of tourists in that they're you know here for a short time they're here they were here they were there in Chiang Mai for a short time and they were interested in in you know what they could learn while they were there and what kinds of things they could experience and so having to facilitate some of their learning and some of their trips made me understand and kind of see the different options for tourists in Chiang Mai and then made me also think about and question the the student monks and the other senior monks who were creating these programs that were meant to engage with tourists. One of the really interesting parts of the book I found is this when we think of Thai Buddhism generally? I think it tends to be understood within a quite nationalistic framework for reasons we don't have to go into. But in your book, we find that many of the student monks that you you interview they come from you know other parts of Buddhist Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Cambodia, Myanmar, and indeed other parts of Buddhist Asia. And of course, the the tourists come from all over the world, especially Western countries, but other places as well. And the the discussions, the uh, the conversations, teaching is done predominantly in the English language. So it's a it's an example of a much more cosmopolitan expression of Thai Buddhism that you know we might be familiar with. Uh, was that something that um, motivated you to to write this book? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think so. And I mean, I think that it, you know, that's why I try to highlight that this is a, a kind of particular version of Buddhism that that is taking place in Thailand. And so most some of the monks are not from not Thai, you know, they're not from Thailand, and they don't know, they don't speak Thai, or they learn Thai when they are, you know, when they arrive, and they live in their uh, temples, but because they're part of Thai Buddhism for at least four years, at least for some of the monks when they come to study in college, that they become unfamiliar with and understand uh, Thai Buddhism. But, you know, the kind of issue there 
is that they came to Chiang Mai in order to learn in English, which is something like learn through their monastic education and learn in English, which is something that they can't do in most of the other countries. And then the people who become the most important tourists then are the ones who are English speaking because they can provide that kind of extra enrichment to their education. And that's part of the reason why Chiang Mai has become this, this, you know, that, that's, the, that's the whole kind of conceptualization of the book that this need for education for the monks and this like boom in tourism, like created this, you know, real synergy that allowed for this kind of creative ways of thinking about Buddhism to engage with tourists, to help tourists understand Buddhism, and also to help the monks be able to explain Buddhism in English and then just also learn English in general. So I talk about in one of the chapters how the monks are, you know, in particular that because they're student monks, they're really focused on a kind of like a more of a modern Buddhist, you know, understanding of Buddhism that they're giving to the tourists. They're focused on, you know, they want to explain the monastic lifestyle, but that's not really as important to them as telling these tourists about the things that they think are the most important about Buddhism. And because they're student monks and they're studying Buddhist doctrines, they want to like really teach them and let them know about these great Buddhist doctrines and they want them to practice meditation. And so I tried to make clear that if we're looking at like all of Thailand, you're not going to see like this version of Buddhism because we have other studies of like forest monks and these kinds of charismatic Kuba monks and we have magic monks. And so there's all different kinds of monks, but this is like a study of student monks and the fact that they're studying English and that they're in this kind of urban tourist environment really affects the kind of Buddhism that they're able to promote or discuss with the with the tourists for this, you know, for the, and for this particular audience. Yes, the the main subject of the book, of course, is the the student monks. Can you tell us a little bit more about them, who they are, what their background is, where they come from, and what why they come to Chiang Mai? Yes. So the in the book, I have a a, a range of monks. The monks that I that are kind of like on the younger end of the spectrum are novice monks from monastic high schools because I did look at some of the lower types of monastic education, not only in college. And then the student monks that are in college, so under monks and undergraduate degrees, you know, going for their bachelors. Um, and so some of those were novices and then some of them were turned 20 and become bhikkhus or some of them are older and they also are, you know, had already been bhikkhus for a while, fully ordained monks. The other monks that are involved in these programs and involved in this study is senior monks, monks who are educators in these monastic education environments. They're uh, principals of these schools and, you know, kind of senior members, like facilitators that are needed for the programs for tourists, like the volunteer tourism that I discuss in one of the, or in most of the chapters, and also the monk chat program that happens in the colleges, the college temples. And yes, I was. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to ask you about this, the monk chat program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that program began in the the early 2000s, and it was because of this interest from the tourists. So the, like going back to our earlier questions, that's why for me, it was hard to kind of ignore tourism. I wasn't like necessarily going out trying to 
make a study about tourism, but it was just like, you know, what, what was, what was happening in this area. So the, as I was told that there, that where Monk Chap began at Wat Swandok, which is where the Mahachulalongkorn uh, Buddhist Monastic University is located, that I guess tourists were coming in in the early 2000s, maybe, you know, just to look at the, there's a kind of beautiful vista of pagodas, white pagodas with like, you know, the sunset in the background is kind of a beautiful, dramatic scene there. And it's kind of right in the old city and there are lots of monks walking around all the time. And so I think some tourists went in and they would, they were kind of continually asking questions about what was happening or about Buddhism. They're interested and so eventually one of the foreign teachers at the university partnered with one of the senior monks and they together created the monk chat program. And that has been going on yeah, for the last you know, 20 plus years at Watsuandok. And that has become really important for student monks. They are know about it from their, you know, older peers, tell them about it, you know, their their older, you know, siblings or family members from other countries from you know, Myanmar and Cambodia and Laos and and they hear about this program and it makes them want to study there because they can practice their English and improve in English so quickly if they come to this, you know, and sit and listen and talk to these tourists for a couple hours each week. And so it's really important for it becomes it became important for recruitment for the university. And then the other university, the Mahamakut Buddhist University at Wat Chai Luang, also then started a monk chat program and also for their university students, their monks, and then at Wat Sisupan, they started a monk jet program because especially on Saturdays is when the walking street happens, right, and passes very close to Wat Sisupan. And so already like the tourists were passing by and they also had student monks that usually live in that temple that are studying at one of the universities. And so they run a monk chat program there too. And so it benefits the the tourists and it's places where the tourists are going to be coming anyway. And then it definitely is benefiting those student monks. So that's why that, that program emerged. Can you tell us something about the international tourists who apply to these programs? Who are they and where do they come from? What's the reason they are interested in these programs? The international tourists, the ones who come to Monk Chat are, I mean, there's just a, a real variety of people, just people, people looking for a day trip to a temple and adding a little bit of extra knowledge onto that. There's people that come to to monk chat that are ones who speak English. And so that's why it's a little bit exclusive in that I talk about the Chinese tourists in uh, one of the chapters. And, and so they can't really participate. You can't really participate if you don't know English. So lots of tourists from North America and Australia and Europe are are there, you know, sitting down and, and talking to monks for, you know, however long they want to. And then they leave. But because this group was so transient, I focused more on volunteer tourists because they come and they work to teach English in monastic high schools for at least a period of a few weeks. So because they are able to stay for slightly longer, I had 
more opportunities to talk to them. And they had more thoughts about what, you know, they were learning about Buddhism, what they were experiencing. But the tourists who just came to talk to somebody for a half hour, an hour, you know, there the wasn't as much, you know, information that I could think to uh, retrieve from them. Um, the other group of tourists that come would be student groups, like uh, student groups, like educational tours, like kind of like what I run and, you know, helped while I was living there to to run. And there's some gap year programs also that come by. Uh, Chiang Mai is a really good place for these kinds of programs because of these cultural exchange programs are so easy to tap into. So if you have a, a teacher and a, a class, it's very easy to get this kind of experiential experience for your class. And so those were the main kinds of tourists that I you know, talked with and discussed in the book. In your analysis, you divide the international tourists into four groups, the Westerners, the Chinese, Muslims, and missionaries. Can you tell the listener about the differences between these groups and the different kinds of interaction that the the uh, the student monks have with each of these groups? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was an interesting part of my research, and that's in uh, chapter what is it chapter three when I talk about the religious others and the Buddhist eye. And I, like I mentioned before, this is um, mainly there's mainly Western tourists who are coming into the monk chat. Uh, this chapter I think is mostly about monk chat, so the college student monks, and you know that's what. That's what I would observe, and that's what they would say. And I look at their guest books. You know, these are the countries that these people are coming from. You know, because it's an English program, so you have to know English. And so those were like the main group of tourists that the monks knew about. But I wanted to also ask them about these other groups because they weren't necessarily, you know, populist, but they were still around as tourists and they were and, you know, and part of Thai society. And so I wanted to hear what the monks had to say about them and how they would contrast them with the kind of, you know, regular tourists who they would think of as the Western tourists, who they would mostly categorize as Christian. So they would think of them as as Christian, as Christians who were like open and interested in Buddhism. And then during the time, like around 2015 is around the time when Chinese tourists from mainland China came into Chiang Mai in, in big numbers. And that's because of this movie that uh, featured Chiang Mai in China. That was a big hit and that was called Lost in Thailand. And so people wanted to come to Chiang Mai. It hadn't really been on the radar before for mainland China. But of course, like in southern Thailand, the ethnic Chinese from Malaysia and Singapore have been, you know, are part of the tourism landscape for you know decades. But this was very new for Chiang Mai to have these, these uh, tourists from mainland China. And they were very different from the Western tourists. And then I also wanted to hear what the monks said about the Muslims because of the issues with Buddhist and Muslim violence and conflict in southern Thailand. And also some of the monks that are attending monk chat are Rakhine monks. So some of them would be knowledgeable about the conflict in in the Rakhine state in, in Myanmar so between Buddhists and Muslims. So I wanted to hear what what they would say about Muslims and whether Muslims ever come or what they, you know, would think if a, if a Muslim ever, you know, entered into monk chat because of these issues that they were kind of on the periphery, right? Because we're in Northern Thailand, so it's not right there, but it's still something that they were aware of. And then the the last group was the the Christian missionaries whom I didn't realize or know came to monk chat until like some of the monks would just sometimes mention it. And I then 
started to really ask them more systematically about these Christian missionaries and you know what they were doing and and why they were uh, coming to Hmong Chat. So I got all of their attitudes and opinions on those different groups. Do you want me to, to summarize what their ideas were about the groups? Uh, yes, please. Okay. So, um, so yeah, like I mentioned, the Western tourists were kind of like their, they were kind of like standard uh, tourists that they were like kind of used to, and they would like refer to them like Farang. They would call them Farang, like in Thai. They would say like these are the you know normal. They would say like these kind of words, the normal uh, tourists that were the kind of the basis and the, and the jumping off point for the other uh, groups. And I called the Western tourists, the Farang tourists, the beneficial other because they provide the English and they provide the opportunity to to express about Buddhism and the monks found them for the most part very open and interested in Buddhism and you know really were understood how to talk to the Western tourists. But for the Chinese tourists, the student monks noticed them around the temple, but they didn't notice them being engaged in Buddhism the way that the West they were used to from the Western tourists. They didn't notice them being interested in coming to monk chat or participating in any of the, you know, looking like looking around the temple or being like seeming like they're interested in in the space of the temple. Instead, they would mention how the Chinese tourists would just like take a picture, you know, get off their bus and get take a picture and then go back on the bus. So they didn't really see like the real authentic engagement that they were used to from the Western tourists. And so that's why I called them the familiar other because they were the monks kind of the student monks reason that they were used to Buddhism. It wasn't that different for them. So that's why they weren't as interested and open in learning about Buddhism, the Thai Theravada kind of Buddhism. And so Muslims, I, I called the distant other because the monks just, some of them would just say like, no, I've never met a Muslim. I've never seen a Muslim here in coming into monk chat. And they would be like a little bit, you know, talk about it like they would be afraid if a Muslim would come in because of the things that they had heard about violence uh, between Buddhists and Muslims. But the ones who had met Muslims were very surprised, happily surprised that they were, the ones that they met were so open and nice and wanted to share about Islam with them, about Buddhists and compare the religions together. So there was a kind of positive outcome for those who had been able to meet some Muslims from various countries. and But the Christian missionaries, for the most part, the monks had very, for the most part, negative attitudes towards because they they felt like the Christian missionaries came in to debate with them. And that's why I call them the competitive other, because they came in, the Christian missionaries, they felt were coming in to kind of attack Buddhism and prove that Christianity was the was the better religion. And the monks were not like aware of this. They didn't have any knowledge that this is how this is, you know, what these people were going to be doing. And so they weren't prepared and they felt very whenever they recalled it, they felt they still felt very upset about it. And they would like plan, like next time I see them, you know, I'll know who they are and I'll, I'll tell them this about Buddhism. So they felt like they were kind of in competition with those uh, Christian missionaries. The monks are, of course, all male, yet the tourists are a mix of, of men and women. Did you notice differences in the way that male and female tourists experience Buddhism in Thailand? 
I mean, the only real difference was whenever, like, especially women, volunteers, tourists would be told, you don't remember, don't touch a monk, you can't, you know, go that close to a monk. But otherwise, these student monks are very, they're kind of used to being around women because they're they're in the city. They have, even more recently, they have lay students that are in the classroom with them studying, and some of them are women in both the universities the yeah the the what at what Sundok and Wache Luang so they're used to being around women and they're not as strict about the distance as like a like a forest monk would be so I don't know if the tourists you know experience that so so differently the only thing that I usually notice of course is about women will say things like the female tourists will notice when they can't enter into a certain area of northern Thai of Thailand temples that have like a restriction on women which would be some of the ordination halls and then at Wache Luang the um the, the, the pillar you you can't go into the spirit pillar uh, for a woman and they would ask sometimes they would ask the monks about that like why why is that the case and the monks would try to answer but they didn't you know they didn't always have there's not there's not really a satisfying answer <laughs> to for a, to a western woman uh, on this so that was something that they noticed you know they were just they were kind of hoping and looking for equality among you know within Buddhism I think a lot of westerners think that Buddhism it's going to be an, an equal you know a, a different kind of religion that promises equality and then they get kind of disappointed when it's not looking in from the outside uh, some might wonder whether international tourists may be taking advantage of these young perhaps naive novice monks but mm-hmm. in the book uh, i think you stress the agency of the monks and in fact arguably in some respects it might seem that the monks have, have the upper hand in that relationship Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some in some of the cases, I think that they do because I mean they're in charge of their temples, and the tourists are the ones that that want to enter as one of their tourist activities. So yeah, I think that if you consider like the kind of the power, the economic power of the tourists then it might seem like the temple might let the, you know, it could be assumed or it could be possible that the temple would let them come in and, and do do what they would want to do in this environment. But in fact, the temple tries to, all of the city temples in Chiang Mai that are, you know, considered like tourist temples that have a lot of tourists that come regularly, they uh, really work hard to maintain the kind of the sacred atmosphere of the temple. And, you know, by sacred, I don't mean like it has to be silent all the time. You know, that's not the way a Thai Buddhist temple is, but sacred from the Thai Buddhist, like lay person's perspective, that this is a place where you can go and and meet monks and uh, make merit. And that has a certain level of respect in terms of behavior and clothing that people are wearing and so the temple work each of these temples that i looked at really work hard to create this environment through uh, signs through officials through security that let tourists know you know how to behave in this space and through through these programs where the monks can also explain you know what's expected in a temple and through the economic resources that the temple is able to garner from the tourists. And so they started to enact fees, especially when the Chinese tourists came in big numbers. They started to enact small fees like 20 baht, uh, 30 baht, 
you know, these are like, you know, a dollar or less, a US dollar. And they wanted to make sure that the tourists were paying their their share, because if so many tourists are coming, then they need the temples where some senior monks were telling me that, well, that the tourists then are not making donations, for the most part, they're not making donations to make merit like Thai Buddhists would. So instead, if they pay a fee, then they can help to pay for the electricity, they can help to pay for some of the maintenance of the temple, some of the hiring of staff that's needed to clean the temple and, you know, provide for the, you know, water and um, education of the monks and some of the food uh, for the monks. So they felt like that was something that they were able to do. And they also helped to benefit the community members by like leasing part of the like outside area of the temple to put up little shops so that when tourists come, they have a place to buy whatever kind of souvenirs or like drinks or something along with other shops like offering shops that would be for more more for Thai Buddhists to purchase uh, offerings to make merit. So the last part that they had agency in was in the allowing the volunteer tourists to come in. And so I, I highlight in that the, the chapter on agency, uh, chapter two, about how volunteer tourism companies like really want to affiliate with the temple and they need to talk to the principal and the conditions need to be right within the school for the tourism company to be able to allow their volunteers to come in and so they need they need the the temple to be okay with this to you know to to allow this and some of the places you know one of the places that I highlight decided that they didn't want the volunteer tourism company to send anyone anymore and that they would find the volunteers on their own. And the other group was like very happy to align with the volunteer tourism company so that they could get some of those easy and free uh, labor to come into their temple and and help them to get some native English into their uh, classroom spaces. So it was really up to the temple in many uh, cases to create these programs and create these fees and, and allow certain tourists to come in for a longer periods or not. So that's, yeah, that's what I saw. And that's why I, I have that in my book. In developing this theme of agency, you discuss a very interesting and as you show under-researched aspect of Buddhism, that is Buddhism as a missionary religion. And you argue that because missionary work tends to be associated with Christianity, and perhaps also Christian missionaries in the last two centuries have been associated with colonialism, the role of missionary work in Buddhism has been overlooked. Can you tell us about uh, Buddhism's status as a missionary religion and whether and in what capacity these monks see themselves as missionaries? Yeah, that was another interesting part of the research and uh, discussions with student monks because it grew out of the idea of the cultural exchange programs, which were, they kind of have this dual purpose and it's hard to say which one is the most uh, important, but it was to, like I mentioned, especially, you know, the beginning one, the first one, like monk chat was that tourists were interested in Buddhism and monks needed to practice English, right? So it isn't only that they just want to practice English and talk about anything. The whole point of it is that tourists are curious about Buddhism. And this this is the, the Buddhist missionizing ideal, that if people are curious, if people are interested about Buddhism, then it's the monastic duty to spread the Buddhist teachings to these people who want to know, who are ready to listen. And that's what these monks were doing in these cultural exchange programs. But 
the issue was that the monks wouldn't ever want to call themselves missionaries because they had the idea of the Christian missionaries, which I just mentioned from the previous chapter about the religious attitudes, the attitudes to religious others. They had this competitive attitude with the Christian missionaries. And they could see how they acted. They could see that these missionaries were going out in order to convert people. And the student monks would say things like, these missionaries are trying to, they're trying to sell the religion. They're going out there and trying to convince people. So they had these kinds of ideas and you know, even metaphors of like economy, like they're trying to sell the religion. And, and the monks wanted to really move away from anything close to that. They didn't want to be seen as people who were trying to push anything on anyone. They, you know, really had this kind of rooted in, in Buddhist ideas from in the chapter on missionization. I go through different like textual examples, but the example of just like being available, being a resource for those who are curious, you know, to share their experience with. And so that's what they would talk about for themselves that they were available, right? Just like a monk on alms round just walks around and is not asking for food. They're just available for anyone who wants to give and make merit. And that's how these monks saw themselves. They're available for any tourist who wants to speak in English and learn about Buddhism. So the so these cultural exchange programs gave them this opportunity to, to spread the teachings, but they also contrasted themselves with Buddhist missionaries, part of like Thai Buddhist programs like the, the Dhammatut especially that's you know still existing where Buddhist missionaries would be sent abroad to establish Thai Buddhist temples because they they knew like we don't have a community that we're like serving as a missionary that's going to continually come back to us like those monks do who set up a temple abroad and live there for a long time but they thought of themselves as planting seeds for the future. Like if somebody's interested, happens to come to Thailand, has the good karma to come into the monk chat program, kind of maybe randomly, but then it plants it plants seeds when they talk to the monk about Buddhism and about the Dhamma. And then maybe they'll go back home and they'll pursue further, they'll read a book or they'll go to a temple. Or maybe it'll happen in the next life. But that was the way that they conceived of missionizing. And I hadn't, you know, really read too much in Buddhist studies scholarship about, you know, contemporary Buddhist missionary missionizing. Just a few examples that I give uh, in the book. So I wanted to really highlight this as one of the significant interventions of the book. One of the themes running through the book is the tension between the commercial venture or activity of tourism and the supposedly otherworldly nature of Buddhism, and. It might be easy to think that through this religious tourism, Buddhism, you know, may become commodified. And I think you know, much of the scholarly literature on Thai Buddhism tends to frown upon anything that has a whiff of commodification. But uh, my sense is you don't seem to see it this way. Yeah, I mean, because I'm I'm looking at it from you know through the emic perspectives of the of the student monks, and so. Partly they're seeing the commercial, you know, they would definitely contrast the commercialism or a commercial venture in, in Buddhist temples with the higher or the better, you know, way of practicing Buddhism or, or expressing Buddhism inside of a temple. In this um, 
this chapter in, in chapter two about their agency is when I delineate between the more of the younger monks who have this kind of idea that we don't need to be, we, we should kind of separate the sacred and the profane more. We should have Buddhism as just a religion that's based on donation that has no kind of commercial activity to it whatsoever. And these student monks, I, I labeled their ideas like the, the rhetoric of enough. That's what I said, because that's how they were talking about it. Like, we have enough. Like, we don't need more. We don't need these these tourist fees. It doesn't feel good when a tourist has to pay money to enter a temple. It should be open to everybody. And we don't need more building projects in the temple. Everything's fine in the temple. And they felt satisfied like they had enough. But some of the senior monks and teachers that I talked to that maybe had more experience and awareness of the temple finance situations had more of this rhetoric of deprivation that wanted to, that could see some connections between commercialism or, you know, some economic opportunities and the temple like coming together. As long as it kind of benefited the community, as long as it benefited the monks' education, they thought, you know, we have a little tiny fee for, you know, we have some commerce in the temple to support the community members, then then that's okay. We can pay our electricity and our water, and that's all we're really doing it for. And so they all had these like different lines between the sacred and the profane, and they had different ways of creating that line. And I think that you can see this way of thinking about Buddhism and commercialism when you're looking at this kind of smaller study like I am, because my scope is on these city temples in Chiang Mai. And the money that I'm talking about is, is yeah, it's like very small amounts of money that they're talking about enacting, uh, you know, for, for these like tourist fees or, or for this, you know, renting out base for selling products. And it's not the same kind of commercialism as Thai Buddhists talk about as like Buddha Panit, which is, which means like Buddhist commercialism, which is more about really large scale selling, you know, the, the kind of bigger phenomenon of sell, the selling of amulets, like ritual services that cost, you know, a certain amount of, of recommended donations. When you go into a temple and there's just all this commerce, that's when people start to get upset about Buddha Panit. But what I'm talking about is, you know, something that's, that can be more kind of debated. I think when people talk about Buddha Panit, that they've already decided it's bad, something that's bad for Buddhism. But if we look at the idea of the fees and just the smaller scale commerce at these city temples, then it's, there's a little bit more of a debate that can happen. And it's not all always something that's negative. Buddha Panit is always has a connotation of negativity to it. Your account of the way that the student monks explain Buddhism to Western tourists is, is very interesting. You say that the monks uh, like to emphasize meditation, which, as we know, has been going through a, a boom in the West in recent years, and, and you've actually written about this uh, in another book. Um, at the same time, in their explanations to the tourists, they tend to downplay other religious practices like devotional rituals and you know, making merit, which ironically tend to be the, the usual activities of, of, of Thai Buddhists. Yeah, yeah, it's true because they're they're thinking about this audience of the other you know, kind of the typical Western audience that this is what they're kind of giving back to them. They, you know, they're like receiving what they think they want and then kind of giving it back to them. So they know that Westerners like meditation and they think that's great because meditation is, is seen as so hard 
for most Thai Buddhists. And so if like your interest is firstly in meditation, then that's like something to really just go with. And if that's the way that you, that's the way that they assume that most Westerners come into meditation, come into Buddhism is through meditation. And then devotion and merit making can follow. But the other group, the, the Thai Buddhists or people who are grow up as Buddhists, then they're going to come into Buddhism through devotion and through merit making and, and chanting and going to the temple. And then they might be convinced to try meditation. That's how they think of it. And I think it's, for the most part, it's pretty accurate for many people, the way that they've kind of divided these groups and that it is, it is hard to understand and think about merit when you are not having grown up as a Thai Buddhist. But meditation is something that is that these people are aware of and they understand that it might have benefits beyond religious benefits. So the monks also understand that and they take that information and then they continue to encourage the Westerners to, to keep meditating. And then they want to, you know, eventually they believe if they do keep meditating, then that, then that faith and that devotion will arise automatically afterwards. It's tempting to think that for international tourists, a few weeks or even a few months teaching and interacting with the Buddhist monks, you know, might not make much of an impact. But you argue that in many cases, it produces what you call a transformative experience. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, just looking at the different interviews and writings from the volunteer tourists I put together in the last uh, chapter five about self-transformation and Buddhist authenticity through volunteer tourism, I go through three different kind of stages or ideas that volunteer tourists have. And, And so the first is that this experience when they're in the temple is about difference. And so the experience matches their expectation because the classroom experience is, you know, filled with monks wearing robes. And that's what the monks understood too. They were like, volunteer tourists want to come to us because of this, you know, because of the robes that we're wearing. And they don't ever get a chance to have students like this before. And if they get to, if the volunteer tourists get to live in the temple, that's when they can really become friends with the monks and they can tutor them after classes and they can experience the environment and they become kind of enchanted by the the smell of incense and the, and the chanting and the early morning sunrise and the monks walking and things like that. And they become like, this is what they kind of expected. But then at the same time, they when they go deeper into beyond just the differences, and they see that the monks are not exactly what they expected. They're these really full human beings who have individual personalities and are not just perfect embodiments of monastic stoicism, as they imagine. And they start to talk to them, and they get to know them. And instead of feeling like, oh, I've been, you know, kind of tricked. These monks aren't really like religious at all. Like some groups might think who've just encountered these monks for an evening or something like that and saw them not behaving as they thought they would because they're there and because they know them, then they feel like I've understood something. I've come to like a real authenticity of the monastic environment that other people really don't get to experience. And when they can make these real connections with monks and they can see that they're not just representations, but they're real people, that like kind of really gives them a a real shift in their understanding of the world. They can also generalize to like all groups that 
the, all groups are like this. They we make all these kind of assumptions about groups of different cultures, but they all have these 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 similarities and these kinds of authenticity that anyone can get to know if they're able to have these kinds of interactions and circumstances where they can get to know them and live with them uh, for a while. But, you know, besides that just idea, at the same time, the volunteer tourists also had some Buddhist values that were able to be transmitted to them, including like they could notice the, the generosity of some of the monastic students in you know, helping the teachers and helping the other students. They noticed their formality and respectfulness, you know, for and their respect for teachers. Um, they noticed the behaviors of lay people towards the monk and the deference and devotion that people had. And they could, you know, really get some of those kinds of values of, of loving kindness, some of them mentioned, and, uh, and generosity, you know, and that they could kind of take that home with them into their own worldview and, and incorporate it in their in their own ways. Towards the end of the book, you deal with the question of authenticity. And for tourists, authenticity is always the mecca of the traveling experience. Maybe that's not quite the right appropriate <laughs> metaphor for this conversation, but you know what I mean. Does religious tourism in Chiang Mai deliver an authentic experience of Buddhism? Yeah, <laughs> that's a hard question. Because, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, the monks, I think, are are being authentic. They're they're trying to show themselves, and they're trying to show. Yeah, if we think about authenticity as being being who you are and wanting to show and express who you are, that's exactly what the monks are trying to do. And they live these Buddhist lives that they when they express it, they're like, I you know, I I live my monastic life, my Buddhist life, and that's what that's all I can show. I can share with them what I experience, and so. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to express that authenticity to the tourists. But like we discussed at the same time, they're giving a, a particular version because they know what the, the tourists are most interested in and what the tourists will most benefit from. Like some of the monks wouldn't necessarily want to talk about the monastic life all the time, like all these details about the monastic life, because they knew that the Western tourists weren't going to be ordaining, you know, for the most part, they're, that's not what they're going to do. And so they thought it's, be, you know, they're kind of selecting then what's the best way to tell them about Buddhism, to tell them about my experience, but in a way that's going to be the most impactful and beneficial for them. Before we conclude, this podcast channel always puts a bit of pressure on our interviewees by asking them if they are working on a new project and if you could tell us what that project is about. Yeah, sure. I mean, this book came out in 2021. I've been working on it since 2013. So yes, I am I am happy to work on new things now. And I have um, a, a book that I wrote like during the pandemic, when I couldn't go to Thailand, um, I wrote a, a book about like an introductory book to Theravada Buddhism, and it's coming out with Shambhala Publications. It's called Living Theravada, Demystifying the People, Places and Practices of a Buddhist Tradition. So it's like for travelers or for students who want to know about uh, Theravada Buddhism in, in mainland Southeast Asia, um, putting together uh, like more about all the different contemporary lived Buddhism that I don't think you get in too many introductions to Buddhism. And then for my scholarly work, I'm, I've been looking at uh, for a while, I've written some articles on it, but I'm working on 
eventually working towards a book project on the, the perceptions and meanings of the monastic body in Thailand and the different ways of performing monasticism and how that's received by the, the lay population. Brooke Shednek, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Religious Tourism in Northern Thailand, Encounters with Buddhist Monks, published in 2021 by University of Washington Press. Thank you. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there are other podcasts about books that deal with Buddhism in Southeast Asia, including Brooke's earlier book, Thailand's International Meditation Centres, Tourism and the Global Commodification of Religious Practices, published by Rutledge in 2015, or Julia Cassaniti's Remembering the Present, Mindfulness in Buddhist Asia, published by Cornell University Press in 2018. You can download or stream this interview and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. 